Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My special guest is poet and author Brian Tofino. Brian holds a BA in creative writing from New York University. He grew up around New England, primarily in Connecticut and New Hampshire, and now resides in New York. Ghosts of Mr. Baker is his debut poetry collection, a book of nostalgia, tragedy, and universal truths. This well-reviewed collection combines poetry and prose to take readers on a journey through time and space, exploring the complex interconnections between past, present, and future. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate the intro. I'm really honored to be on tonight. Fantastic. Let's begin this poetic journey. Brian, what is poetry? To me, poetry, I think, is any form or structure of telling a story uh, in a message of simply non-paragraph form. Uh, Obviously, traditionally, poetry has come in more structured form with uh, rhyme schematics and in modern day has transitioned more into uh, a variety of form. And I think now having uh, access to flash poetry and things of that nature, especially through uh, the rise of its presence on social media, Instagram, et cetera, uh, I think it's become more so the importance of accessible language and uh, I think short, succinct storytelling through this form, which has been a really cool rise to see uh, poetry come back to the forefront of literature. All right. Tell me more about poetry from your heart. I think poetry from your heart comes a lot from, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No problem. No, continue. Uh, I I think the poetry from your heart, I think, comes from a lot of experience and trying to share this through storytelling. And I think that um, one of the really neat things about poetry to me is just the accessibility aspect of it. Uh, in the sense that if you're able to present it in a shorter, more digestible form through language that many can grasp or express it in perhaps a different way that other mediums of writing wouldn't be able to. It makes poetry a really powerful tool. And I think that writing poetry from the heart comes from packing a lot of information into those short, succinct uh, instances and uh, is what really leverages poetry to be uh, a valuable form of writing and um, uh, gives it a chance to rival those of, of fiction and longer novels to tell a story perhaps as powerful and detailed in uh, much less time. I can understand. Very nice. Based on what you know about poetry, creative writing, and your own life, your own lived experiences, is poetry important? Yes, I, I, I think poetry is extremely important. I think that it kind of comes back to the overall theme of why is literature important, and I think that the answer to that, frankly, is both to educate people and to be a form of a therapeutical outlet for people as well. And I think that poetry accomplishes both of those and therefore makes it important. I think um, it's really important, especially in uh, today's day and age of technology. I think that a lot of people, really smart people, have a tendency to, even in the news, only read headlines um, or just shorter clips of writing. And I think that that has allowed poetry to have more of an importance again than it maybe had several decades ago. Uh, And I think that happens in the sense that 
um, people can read a sentence or two sentences and have it be very powerful without much more context and understand what someone's saying. And I think that mm-hmm. serves for both purposes, both on uh, whether it's current events or someone's lived experience that they want to share that may be relatable for others. Uh, I think that there is a really, really strong aspect of relatability in short writing nowadays. And I think similarly, uh, this can come across in a therapeutical sense for people, even if it's not new information or educational. I think it can provide a lot of uh, relief for folks and um, really, I think, take the substitute that perhaps longer longer novels or, uh, I guess, nonfiction writing may have in the past as well. All right. You know, there are those out there, though, who believe that poetry is dying. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that it kind of depends on how you contextualize it. I think that they're, the old form of poetry, I think uh, it likely is in the sense that people are getting away from strict form and um, in rhyme schemes and I don't think you'll see very many poems coming out in iambic pentameter nowadays, but I think mm-hmm. that poetry has made uh, a resurgence in the fantasy and come into new areas. I think like one good example is honestly just on, on social media, especially I think that's a platform where it really shows how much poetry is coming back. Uh, for example, I think like a lot of, a lot of Instagram feeds, you would see kind of the, I watch call flash poetry of just one or two line poems. And uh, I think, for a lot of people, they don't necessarily, if you're, if you're someone who's walking into a bookstore, you may not gravitate towards the poetry section, and, and that's yes. obviously fine and natural, but I think that uh, seeing it on Instagram, and I, for example, like I even have on my own social media a saved folder of anything I see on there, which is packed with uh, hundreds, hundreds of saved files now, but um, I think that gives it a real outlet to come back in the sense that it's a lot easier for people to access because it's not this intimidating thing of going and picking up uh, maybe a poetry book from, from decades or centuries ago where the language is kind of meant to uh, show off someone's intellect and more so meant to provide that, uh, the relatability that we talked about earlier and just why poetry is important and, and provide that therapy for folks. And um, I, I think that's like really evident, honestly, on social media today mm-hmm. and think that a lot of people do gravitate towards that. And I think uh, it, it may it may not show up quite yet in uh, book sales or popularity versus other genres, but I think that in terms of what people naturally tend to like and read, I think especially with folks maybe not having quite the level of dedication to sit down and and read for as long as maybe past generations did, I think that that's an area where literature could actually continue to grow a lot. All right, very nice. Please share with us an early experience, Brian, where you learned that poetic language had power. Yeah, I, I think um, – I, I don't think I was – I wasn't quite exposed to poetry uh, as a kid, perhaps some other poets perhaps. So I think there's – I think I have kind of a two-part answer to it of, uh, like, realizing the importance of storytelling, which is what I really view poetry as. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I guess when I realized how storytelling could, could be something that I do through poetry. And I think uh, for me, like, storytelling as a kid was really important. Honestly, I was uh, – a big part of our family uh, and, and what made a lot of the older folks, especially my, my grandfather and older relatives and my father, like really entertaining people to be around was uh, their ability of storytelling. And for me, um, when I think back of like, how did I become a creative person? I think it really came down to, uh, I, was, I was joking with my mom earlier, actually, that uh, she would always read to us out of books when we were kids at nighttime and had a lot of structure around it and would read kind of the same four or five that we really liked. And when it was my dad's turn, he would kind of freestyle and he would just tell 
a story that he comes up with on the spot that's wildly creative. And, um, you know, I, I remember many of them to the day that I think he probably just made up right there on the spot, which are quite funny. And so uh, I think the, the importance of storytelling was really drilled into me as a kid. And I think that that was what made spending time with family really enjoyable was hearing mm-hmm. all of those. Uh, mm-hmm. And then as I got older, I was like, I felt like I had a lot of these stories that were really valuable and stories that I had come across to my own life experiences that I obviously wanted to share. And I felt like I was a decent storyteller, but maybe not quite good enough in the written form to really be taking off with it. And then uh, when I was in college, actually, Ross Gay, who's a remarkable poet, um, most notably, I think, wrote The Book of Delights, uh, talked about kind of his experience in being inspired by the book Hoop Dreams from the 90s and uh, just like really spent like an hour with us just discussing how his cultural experiences growing up and the stories that he had came out in his poetry. And that was the first time where someone had really, uh, at least of a really accomplished poet, had spoken to us about how this was really just storytelling for them and sharing their own experiences. And I think that it wasn't, it wasn't quite as granular of a breakdown as I had heard from other poets who I looked up to at the time. And I think that that was what really, um, kind of enabled me to like go for it and start trying to write stories that I had felt in poetic form uh, as it took it away from being this really intimidating thing and made it more accessible for people that uh, especially reading his book of delights I think that that really showed me how you can be successful in storytelling through poetic form and that they don't necessarily need to be bifurcated and um, it got it, it honestly just kind of got me away from as much as I really love reading Robert Frost and Walt Whitman and uh, people from that generation, it, it showed me the value in taking stories that maybe in the past may have been viewed to been told through a different form and, and put them into poetry and give it a try. Very nice. Again, what do you write about, Brian? What are some of the predominant themes? When I mention time and space and complex interconnections between past, present, and future, that's a lot. So tell us more. Bless <laughs> it out for us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it kind of continues down that path of just writing about experiences and things that I felt uh, growing up. And I'm, I think I focused a lot on, on teenage years just because those, are, I think, are when most people, especially myself, face the most amount, the highest volume of challenges, I suppose, and probably, like, to that point in your life, the highest severity uh, in terms of what you view as important. And um, for me, I was always really connected with past generations. Honestly, I was, I was lucky enough to have my great-grandmother live until I was – about 11 years old, and um, uh, and as I alluded to earlier, like storytelling was a, a huge part of my upbringing, and uh, I always really enjoyed that, just like hearing stories from older generations and uh, things that went on, you know, 50 years before I was even born, and just trying to feel more connected to that. And I think that really did help me feel more connected to older family members and, and even younger ones of, of just like my parents or siblings. And so for me, I was always really interested in just like the history aspect of what went on before I was born, really. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as I went through high school, I had shared uh, shared a school with Hobie Baker, who, uh, which most people likely don't know, is uh, the equivalent of the Most Valuable Player Award for college hockey is named after him. And uh, I played hockey through through college for New York University and uh, was a really big part of my life, honestly. And uh, learning more and more about his story, I felt more connected to him, more connected to the space and uh, trying to make sense of someone who you idolize and learning more about their story that's really flawed, uh, honestly, just kind of explained a lot of questions I think I had at the time in that age. And, uh, you know, luckily I was able to be exposed to people who 
who showed me poetry and the value that that can have and, and, and make an impact to share those feelings that I had and the takeaways. And, um, you know, not, not the only thing that I've really done poetically, but probably my favorite. And mm-hmm. I think that was a story where I really got to dive into all these things that have been important to me growing up from a literary standpoint of uh, the, the storytelling that I had been exposed to from, you know, older people in my family as a kid and then uh, learning more about history that I felt connected to. And then uh, luckily through, through being shown the way I suppose by Ross Gay, just show um, being able to find a way to express that poetically. And, um, and this, and this is where I landed, I suppose. You know, I read about your playing hockey. So uh, (laughs) you're a superstar. All right. All right. (laughs) Certainly not a superstar, but uh, (laughs) tried to do my job. (laughs) Well, you're the first hockey player that's ever been on this program in 400 games. (laughs) So that makes you special. That makes you a superstar. (laughs) All right. Your book, Ghost of Mr. Baker. Tell us about what inspired it. Yeah, I – so I was in – I was in my – senior year at NYU, uh, just taking my capstone poetry class, which was my focus within creative writing. And I was trying to figure out really what to write about. And, um, and, that, and that was initially just for basically the assignment was a manuscript over the course of a semester. And uh, I was really trying, I was, I was struggling to figure out what to write about. I started writing about just the process of growing up and um, kind of along the same themes that I had discussed earlier. Like I, we had grown up, a little bit in New Hampshire as well, uh, primarily in Connecticut, but in New Hampshire, we were neighbors with my grandparents, actually. And so that was a really big part of my life. And uh, my grandfather, who I was quite close to, had passed away about about 18 months prior to the start of this project. And mm-hmm. so I started focusing on that and trying to write about all that meant to me and, and honestly just kind of sorting through the emotions of uh, I guess the aftermath of, of that chapter of my life closing. And mm-hmm. um, as I got into it, I was really struggling just because there was only, there was only so much I could say about that topic. Um, and a lot of it was just a bit repetitive. And so as I got into it, I kind of broadened it out a bit more to, okay, what does this place mean to me? What does New Hampshire mean to me? And um, having gone to school there for two years, what did that mean to me? And as I kept going, I kind of stumbled into this Hobie Baker being part of that. Uh, which initially I don't think was really the focus, but I always felt this weird, strange connection to him. And so uh, I continued writing about that, and I ended up at first writing a poem about it. And uh, my professor, who uh, was Zane Koss, who's another poet, uh, gave me the suggestion to maybe try uh, breaking out of form and trying to do a more creative uh, tribute to him. And so that led me down the path of writing a letter, which uh, closes the chapbook, but um, as I wrote that letter, it, it made me realize how much substance was there and how much I hadn't explored in that topic. And so that's what really led me down the path of starting to find out more. And I knew a lot of his story just having uh, read his biography before and uh, doing extensive research just through the school and through other people who know a lot about him and, um, and, and then Internet research as well. And as I compiled more and more, it just became more of a fascinating story. And so... I really just tried to continue down that path, not not really looking to necessarily tell his story, but more just I thought it was fascinating how it coincided with mine and some of the feelings that I shared and, um, you know, some overlaps of, of him being arguably the best hockey player ever and then, um, you know, having a lot of emotional struggle, I think, 
made a lot of the challenges that I faced as a teenager feel more normal to me at an older age. Um, mm-hmm. Just seeing that someone who, who I had idolized and obviously accomplished a great deal more than I did in what I valued at the time as athletics, um, seeing that they had really similar struggles and, and perhaps even to a more extreme degree um, was, was both comforting and troubling. And so I think that that was something that I really wanted to dive into. And uh, it ended up manifesting in a lot of those feelings that I didn't really know I had, I don't think, until now. And uh, as those spilled out, it was really cool then to get to have uh, siblings and extended family members and friends read it and have discussions made me realize, I guess, just how it was a lot more relatable than I thought it was going to be for people. And that for me, it was about this really specific story about Hobie Baker, about hockey, about emotions that I had experienced. And as I got more and more into it with folks, it made me realize that it was about a lot more and that there was a lot more you could take away from it. Um, and, and at first I was quite scared that this would be something that maybe other people don't relate to or, um, you know, maybe other people haven't experienced this and maybe this is really just kind of a, a, a more specific thing for myself. And I was really happy that I, I appeared to uh, be wrong on that and that it seems like it's led to a lot of really interesting conversations just about, what everyone goes through growing up and while we all have different experiences and maybe someone when they're reading this would think about someone who's not Hobie Baker and think about a different individual who they're relating to. Uh, I quite like the fact that we can each have a different individual story within that, but still kind of come back to these base principles about challenges that we all face as, as kids, teenagers, and adults. And um, it's been definitely like very inspiring to just hear people's stories and get to understand uh, how we differ and how we relate and, um, how that contributes to the, the overall human experience of trying to understand one another. Please share a poem. Yeah, so uh, the first one I, I can share, uh, this one's titled Flashbacks. It's understandable. Someone feels fear, stuck inside the blue tiled hallways. All you can do is run laps, the never-ending square loop, A 1950s phone ringing, young, innocent laughs running away from you. The loop gets bloodier as you keep running around, looking for them, but they move every time you get close to the sound. They're just as likely to turn to God as anything else. Sometimes faith is more concrete. The sounds of an angel meets the smells of happiness, only lasts at a moment. God doesn't hear dead men, but I hope he answers them unless the phone ringing in the distance simply can't be picked up. Thank you. Wow. Tell us about the purpose of that piece. Yeah, so, so this piece um, I wanted to read tonight specifically just because I felt that it tied together both uh, the two angles of the manuscript between myself and obviously the historical context. And um, I felt that the one instance in that, which uh, not to kind of overanalyze too much, but uh, mm-hmm. the 1950s phone aspect within that poem was what I really felt was kind of the bridge between us in that, in the sense that I felt the importance as I learned more about this story and how people viewed it um, was that it bothered me that these same challenges people faced, obviously over a hundred years ago, were still prevalent within people in the same space doing the same things today. And so for me, I felt like I didn't want to nail it down as a concrete time frame just because I felt like it could have happened any time. And that was kind of the point that obviously two individuals who are on the opposite end of the spectrum shared this. 
And so what does that mean? I think to me it means that anyone in between those two also could have and likely did share this as well. And so uh, I felt that it was important to kind of give an ambiguous time frame with that. And uh, going into it, I think, like, the really sad part about that, that poem is just um, the part of, of God doesn't hear dead men, which obviously the Hobie Baker story, um, it ends with him committing suicide when he's 26. And so um, I think the fact that there were maybe not as many signals uh, evidenced today by what we know about him, but I think from trying to piece clues together, it seems like this was a guy who had some, some pretty serious struggles and experiences of extreme loneliness. Um, you know, for people who don't know the story, his, his mom deserted their family when he was a teenager. Um, his brother ended up having to leave school so they would have enough money to send him through school. And uh, it was really the first time when he was alone, and I think he was alone for a long time. And then as he got into adult life, uh, was engaged as he went off to World War One, and then was deserted by his fiance, which uh, by many accounts seems to be the final nail in the coffin for him of uh, really just not being able to handle what he had gone through at that point. And when you kind of think about that story starting at age at age really 14, I think, when his mom left their family after uh, the financial panic of, I believe it was 1908. Um, it's just really sad, like, how, how long he really went through this. And uh, for someone who was such a famed figure uh, and, and people not really recognizing it, it was alarming to me. And so uh, I felt it was important to allude to that. And I felt that uh, that, that poem was probably – the high level encapsulation of just everything that this was about obviously uh, other poems kind of dive into more particular aspects of that but that felt like the overarching one to me mm. please share another poem yeah so uh next poem i can share is titled sal's bar a starlit door stands tall opening opening a house of memories where sal built his bar the distinct smell of dark wood walls and the view of joy within a lake, simple fun on those murky waters, a checkered sofa facing the box TV, inviting all to sit shoulder to shoulder, a row of geese sitting on the overhead beam, a moose gazing through the tight kitchen window, covered in the dense New Hampshire snow, mittens and brutes to frolic, to frolic in the storm, Grandmother watching with a beaming smile, the comfort of adoration within a family, all the evenings spent at that long wood table, falling through chairs and spilling drinks, the freshness of looking over this blurry lake. I can't wait to one day see you again, filling the seats each night at Sal's Bar. Thank you. Wow. Another very deep piece. Question for you, Brian. Does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? No, I, I don't. I don't think it does. There's um, there's emotional points in it for sure. Like um, this that poem, for example. Um, mm -hmm. I actually that was the first one I wrote within this collection, and uh, I think that one's a good example to answer that question, frankly, just because um, it was a really emotional thing to write and even to to look back and read now, just because uh, Sal was my grandfather's. So that reflects on just everything that he meant for kind of bringing our whole family to that, that area and that space and really putting us in this setting and making it so meaningful along with obviously, you know, countless other family members and people. But um, while it's emotional to, to go through and, and face those sad feelings of that chapter being closed, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's more therapeutical uh, to be able to get that out and express that and be able to share that because I felt that 
the key takeaways for me, at least within writing that, were uh, the tribute to my grandfather, obviously, who uh, put an instrumental part in getting me into writing. And then uh, on top of that, I think just kind of leaving it off in a circular way that, um, you know, a lot of other people will share the same experience. Uh, a lot of people have in the past and at the same time as us and, and will continue to in the future. And so uh, while it's a sad topic for me and, and hard yes. to face, I think that it more so leaves me with a feeling of hope and joy for uh, not only myself, but for others as well. So as you think about your craft, what are you attempting to communicate with your art? I think for me, it's primarily about finding my own voice within storytelling and trying to do so in the most impactful and powerful way that I can. I think that for me, um, it was the realization of the shared feelings and takeaways from people with very different backgrounds and even really different experiences and that a lot of people end up with uh, similar takeaways despite not having gone through the same things or come from the same places. And so for me, I think that the goal in my craft is just how do I articulate mine in a way such that other people who, who both do come from maybe a similar background and experience can understand the story I'm telling. And then uh, similarly, people who maybe have on paper really like no way to relate to it can actually read it and take something valuable away from it and understand where I'm coming from and uh, be able to have that coincide with themselves and be able to take away something meaningful from it. And uh, I, I feel like I like writing in, uh, honestly, a wide variety of forms, but I think poetry mm -hmm. is really powerful in that to be able to just give quick snippets of stories. And um, I think that the openness of the interpretation, honestly, is what enables people from very different stories to be able to do that. And I think mm -hmm. that's a really cool, really cool part of poetry that, uh, other literary forms perhaps not not miss, but just don't really have the same uh, frequency of. And so it's, I think that's really my main goal is just to be able to tell a story that's relatable for everyone in one way or another. You know, it sounds like based on your background that storytelling is in your blood. Do you view yourself <laughs> as being a storyteller or wordsmith? I, so well, I, I think it's kind of a two-parter. Sorry. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was, or both, both a storyteller and a wordsmith. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a two-parter. I think I've ever, I think I view myself first as um, first as a storyteller primarily, um, mm -hmm. and I think that for me, it, at least now currently, it comes easier to kind of think out a story that I'd like to tell and how I want it to be portrayed and what I think is is important within it, and then. Um, from that point, I think wordsmithing is a really important part because I think that I would say like word choice tone and just like how you're describing things and how you're telling is what can make or break the storytelling process. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone can think of an example of someone who maybe is a really good, has really good stories, but isn't necessarily a great storyteller. And I think that to your point, the difference in that is perhaps just wordsmithing and how you actually tell it. And so I think that you really can't quite have one without the other. And so mm -hmm. um, I, I think I definitely view myself primarily as a storyteller and, um, you know, like to think that I, I work out the wordsmithing to get there. But um, right. obviously I think they rely on each other a bit. All right. Please share another form. I enjoy hearing sure. your work. Um, so the next one I'm going to share is titled Leaving Concord. An old guy sitting in a bar 
asked me if I had considered the prospect of living alone. I had to summon the confidence needed to hear goodbyes, another brief chapter without answers. I packed up my room and heard the songs she used to sing in the shower in my room by myself, my thoughts, three bags and six hockey sticks that kept me safe all these years. A one-way ticket to somewhere unknown, experience robs me of the hope that I'll ever return. Church bells ring for those that are easy to leave. I swore I'd never run away, so God bless the broken force that always brings us back. And the tune plays on. We're on our own trip, falling in love by the milligram. Pay no attention, no intentions can keep this from getting out of hand. So resistant because we know that we are so content to sleep where we land. Thank you. Wow. You know, as I, I'm looking at the cover of your book, tell us about the creation of it. What was that process like? Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was really cool. I, um, luckily, uh, Atmosphere Press was very helpful with connecting us with a cover design artist named Ronaldo Alves, who was incredible uh, at the whole process. And so he and I worked closely together and really just trying to create something that would capture the essence of both the book and myself. And I think uh, he really preached to me just the importance of the cover is, is almost the first page in the sense that that's the first thing someone's seeing and really looking at and reading and sets the tone. Um, and I felt that some key areas of this were just the, obviously the school of the shared space of Hobie Baker and myself, and then just the surrounding region of New Hampshire, the feeling of winter time. Uh, I think that the pond and the lake was an important aspect, uh, both from having grown up on the lake and then also obviously spending a lot of time skating on the pond. And while, while the book mm-hmm. isn't, of course, not about hockey, um, hockey plays a big role in the connecting here, uh, at least for myself, from my own point of view. And so mm-hmm. basically we tried to take a bunch of images. Um, you know, we took like images of the lake, images of the school, um, images of just like certain areas of New Hampshire that seemed to really capture this. And then, um, you know, he, he worked the magic and, um, and he ended up with this cover, which is uh, not a, a picture of anywhere in New Hampshire actually, but just okay. kind of his creation of what those all represented and trying to combine those images. And mm-hmm. so uh, we went to a school that was religiously affiliated. And so you have the chapel in the background there and then uh, the trees from, you know, the forest in New Hampshire and then, uh, the body of water in front, which is a pond, kind of represents both like the pond aspect from hockey as well as growing up on the lake. And then just the snow and, and the blue of the wintry New Hampshire, I think really just ties it all together to really give that feel of like that's where we are uh, for the entirety of this. All right. I'd like you to share with me the titles of five poems in the book, five random poems, any five. Yeah. Uh, so five titles that I quite liked were The Eve of Spring, uh, Can You See Me, Frost on the Ground, Voice Like an Angel, and Dear Hobie. All right. So when you're titling a poem, Brian, what is important to consider in that process? What comes to mind? I, I think it's, it's in a way similar to uh, what Ronaldo's point around the cover was it's just that that's almost like now that's the first line in the poem to some extent and so I think it's important to both you don't want to give away what's happening in the poem but you still want to allude to it enough where you're creating the tone that you want going into it and so uh, I think you just want it to be indicative of what the poem is going to capture 
uh, like, for example, I think like frost on the ground, obviously like that gives a feeling of winter time. Uh, and so I think that as you dive into that, it's important to have a title that's indicative of that. And so for me, I think that title also is kind of what comes into your head naturally. In a lot of ways, I think it's similar to, to spacing on the page of like where lines are aligned in terms of uh, being, you know, on the left side, center or right. Um, and I think a lot of times it just has to do with like what flows well. And I think it has to just come naturally to some extent. Um, I'm actually, I'm really not someone who likes to, to play around with titles a ton after the fact of having titled something. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously maybe an edit here or there, but uh, for me a lot, I had actually written the book by hand originally. Um, oh, wow. I, I felt that I, I just write better when I don't have a delete button, frankly. And so um I sat down with a pen and paper uh, and a notebook and I, and I started writing it. And when I was doing that, obviously I just kind of wanted to have the formality of titling things. And I think that was, it was very helpful to do that by hand just because it really forced me to not second guess or think about the titling too much and more so focus on, okay, what is natural? What is this about? Um, You know, what is, what are three to five words that can be overarching of this entire poem that I can write down right now? And, and, uh, you know, some of them were unsuccessful, obviously, and um, mm-hmm. went back and edited. But for the most part, um, I felt that that natural in-the-moment decision was uh, fairly successful in terms of figuring out what accomplished that. So when you write, what comes first, the title or the poem itself? Uh, the poem itself comes first. So usually my writing process is if I were to sit down, I, I like to have, you know, uh, really no distractions. And I think that I put a big effort into engulfing myself in the vibe that I'm trying to write in. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that involves like lighting within the room or uh, a certain type of music that will be on in the background and um, trying to really create the environment that I want to portray. And so once I do that, I sit down and I usually write by hand and uh, really just like take out the pen and start writing the poem. And, um, you know, sometimes, Sometimes you get three or four lines in, it's not really working, you just go on to the next one. And um, I think just trying to continually move and just make progress and write as much as possible uh, instead of nitpicking over it is really helpful because obviously there's, you know, even if you even if you have a terrific first pass, there's going to be uh, countless hours of editing afterwards and, um, and rereading and reading aloud and, and getting people's feedback. And so typically I'll write the poem first uh, and then I really don't go back and title until I've kind of, lost that groove and um okay. you know sometimes i may even write two or three poems in a row untitled and then uh when i hit the point where i i don't really know what comes next i'll i'll go back revisit start titling and sometimes honestly those those titles can make you think of other lines or words or topics that can then get you reperpetuated to start writing again and so um i i think that's a big focus uh that i really really value in writing is just trying to continually be doing something and, um, and find ways to continue my progress. And so right. uh, I, I try to just continue writing the poems as much as I can right. and then uh, go back and titling it as kind of the, the intermediate point. Okay. We're going to take a brief break, but there's a question that I'd like you to answer when we return. Here we go. How does a poem know where to go? Do you lead or does it lead you? All right. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
We are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Brian Zafino. Brian, when you write a poll, who leads? You are the poll. Yeah, it's a terrific question. I think, um, honestly, I think it kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier in terms of whether or not writing poetry was hard uh, for me uh, emotionally. And so I think that it ends up being that the poem leads the writer, I think, more so, at least for myself, uh, mm-hmm. primarily just because I think that a lot of times when you're diving into a topic, at least for myself writing about this specific topic, I don't think I necessarily had a, a premeditated notion of what exactly I wanted to put on the page. Uh, I don't think I had mapped out mentally lines and how I was going to go through it, and more so just had an idea and felt like, uh, okay, I need to express this somehow. And uh, I think as you go through it, it kind of answers a lot of the questions, obviously, because, um, you know, for myself and presumably for a lot of people, I think that what makes writing enjoyable is the fact that it's therapeutic for answering a lot of these questions. And so um, I think in doing so, I think it's hard to then lead the poem in a direction that you want to go if you don't already have the answers. And, And certainly there are times uh, where you do have the answers. Uh, I think like the, the poem of my grandfather is probably a good example where I am leading the poem to some extent of, uh, you know, I, I know this is what I want to discuss and I've lived this and this is how I want to portray it. But also still at the same time, you don't totally know where that's going to go um, or, or what those feelings are going to happen. Um, I think if you, you may write, you may write four lines and then, you know, get hit with a wave of a certain emotion and, and that's what you need to express now. And so um, I think, I think there's certainly some extent of planning that goes into it and knowing what you are going to write about and um, generally how you're going to get started. But I definitely, at least for myself, I quite enjoy letting the poem guide me. And um, a lot of times surprises yourself of just going into an area that either you didn't plan to or you didn't even know you could. Yes. Please share another poem. Sure. Um, so I'll share Frost on the Ground. Mornings are rough. Hair freezes on the walk to the chapel. There are two kinds of people in this world, and you're neither. In the car headed home, she asked if I ever considered turning around. Stains in my eyes flooded my heart. Soon enough, all the songs went away, and the echoes of silence filled the town, still always coming back to you. Cocaine costs twice as much as whiskey. Better to drink the fear away. With all the other townies, I judge worse than anyone. I pace and I drink and I repeat memories in my head. And the songs we sang still rang in my ear. Convinced I might be clean for a day, experience tells me you'll never return. Thank you. I think I'd like you to share that one again. I really like it. Frost on the ground. Mornings are rough. Hair freezes on the walk to the chapel. There are two kinds of people in this world, and you're neither. In the car, headed home, she asked if I ever considered turning around. Stains in my eyes flooded my heart. Soon enough, all the songs went away, and the echoes of silence filled the town, still always coming back to you. Cocaine costs twice as much as whiskey. Better to drink the fear away with all the other townies I judge worse than anyone. I pace and I drink and I repeat memories in my head and the songs we sang still rang in my ear. Convinced I might be clean for a day, experience tells me you'll never return. Thank you. Wow. 
What was your strategy, Brian, for organizing the poems in the book? Was it sections, chapters? Talk to me. What did you do? Yeah, so um, for, for this one in particular, I felt like it was even more into that extreme of storytelling. And so mm-hmm. in terms of organization, I, I had gone through, and obviously, as I said earlier, just like starting this with being a little bit of a, a different goal, I suppose, or a different vision in the project. I had portions of this that had been written about uh, myself growing up in New Hampshire in that area. And so, the, like, obviously, when I had handwritten this in the notebook, these were all in a very different order. Uh, so then to your question of, like, how did I then put these into the order that I actually yes. liked, it kind of came down to how how do these then flow together and, um, you know, how does each one kind of serve as a stepping stone towards getting to the end? Because I knew, um, and the end is is a emotional four-page letter from myself to Hobie Baker, and so um, I knew that that was the end goal of kind of where I wanted to conclude. And mm-hmm. so then it became a question of, okay, how do I get from the forward, which basically is a, a quote from the New England Historical Society telling the Hobie Baker story in brief, and how do I get from there to making this as powerful as possible in terms of uh, expressing kind of what happens in between. And so uh, I think it was important for me to bounce back and forth in time a little bit because, to my point earlier, I felt like uh, this wasn't really uh, – I don't think it's it's strange that someone going through the same experiences as him relates to him in these ways. I think that uh, through speaking with friends and people who have similar experiences and even the exact same experience uh, as mine, like I think a lot of people really relate to it on a pretty deep level. And um, so trying to bounce back and forth and just make the, the year, the time period aspect of it as irrelevant as possible in the sense that this could have happened to anyone at any point in time, really, it seems was really important to me. And so um, it kind of came down to a balance of how do I tell this in a progression while also not just making it, you know, okay, here's the story from the early 1900s and now here's the story from the uh, early 2000s. And so uh, a little bit back and forth and um, just trying to continue progress without making it linear. You know, what I like about your work is the accessibility. And what I'd like to know from you is, should one employ a lot of mental energy to solve a poem? Sorry, could you repeat that last part? Yes. Should you employ a lot of mental energy to solve a poem? Um, you, you know, I, I don't – it's hard. I think, I think it really depends on what you're reading because I think at certain times no and certain times yes because I think that certain poems are perhaps – there are certain poetry collections even are maybe designed to pose more questions than answers. And I think in those instances, uh, yes, like you should think uh, uh, very hard. I think especially around things that are, you know, current issues and, and really complex, really, really complex problems that exist within the world. If there's poetry written about that, I think it's important to give the poet their credit of uh, they're asking us to really think about this. And so I think in those instances, yes. I think I think in my instance, um, I think a lot of it comes to the initial human reaction that you get from reading it, which I like more, which I think I would urge people who read this maybe to not have quite as much uh, arduous thought on it just because I think for myself it's more, it's more designed. Like obviously there are some questions that arise from it uh, naturally, but I think more so I've found that it provides 
answers or if not answers, perhaps maybe just comfort in that process. And so mm-hmm. um, I think that obviously there's a wide variety of, of writing within poetry. And so uh, within this specific collection, I would say that um, I don't think it's designed to be thought about quite as hard. Uh, not to say that it's maybe not as deep or complex, but more so just that I think that the goal in reading this or even the goal of putting it on page is different than one collection that may be designed to raise a complex issue and ask us to actually think about it and uh, reapproach it maybe in different lenses. Which brings up a question, and it sounds like empathy between you and the reader is very important. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, yeah, 100%. Flesh that out some more because I'm a major proponent of empathy in poetry, so I'd just like to hear your thoughts about that. How do we create it? How is it manifested? What do we do? What do you do? Yeah, I, I think that, um, like, the goal in that, in my view, is just, like, to, to part of our conversation earlier, just, like, how can you make something relatable for everyone or at least uh, to some level relatable for everyone? Obviously, there's regardless of the story, there's always going to be someone out there, right, who who understands it and can relate to it in a much closer way and others who it's a bit further from home for them and that's fine, but they can, if it's successful, hopefully they can take something away from it that's valuable. And um, I think for me in terms of trying to like accomplish that, it stems from just like not being afraid of telling a story and thinking, Oh, someone may not relate to this or this may not make sense to someone in trusting that if you really are raw and completely open about your experience as a human being, that, like enough people out there will understand and relate to it and just the emotional magnitude of it will resonate with people. And I think that for me, what I learned through this is just trying to tell the story to its truest form and as specifically as possible and not deviating from that to make it like, I guess, I guess more relatable for people is sometimes counterproductive. And so uh, I think my goal is in the writing process in terms of, okay, how do I accomplish that relatability and, and just like the shared empathy between myself and readers is just mm-hmm. really just like just be myself and be open about, about the hard parts of being myself. And I think that um, just trying to open up as much as possible about those and, and to the best of my ability, avoid being pretentious about it. Obviously, um, you know, everyone has their insecurities, including myself. And that's, you know, yes. it's hard, especially when you're writing to, to get away from that and you know you naturally you naturally want to put yourself back in that shell of like of hiding from some of those things or portraying yourself in a different way and i think just really trying to just find those i mean especially when you're writing um writing a 10-line poem you know it, it doesn't take a great amount of time and just trying to really be open with yourself for those however many minutes it takes to get mm-hmm. that on the page i think is really how you find uh, the success in terms of like being able to have empathy between you and the reader. So uh, obviously, you know, again, back to the point of like, does everyone relate to this? Like I, I hope most people do, but obviously the, in, the specific experience isn't all that relatable for everyone, which is fine as long as I think the emotional takeaways from it and what I'm putting out emotionally can resonate with people in some way or another. And, and I think, um, you know, I like to believe in the good of people and just that anyone reading anyone reading anyone's writing that is totally open and emotional and just their raw selves, I think everyone would, would find value and empathy in because I think at the end of the day, we all want to understand each other and, um, and find those takeaways. Yes. You know, has a poem you've written, Brian, ever humbled or frightened you? 
Yeah, I I think definitely. Um, I think within this collection, I think an example that would be humbling is just like trying to face those similarities and, and dive into the darker parts of it. I think in like, obviously um, the obvious similarity is the hockey aspect and the school aspect. Um, but trying to then dive into like, okay, I, you know, you can't really, nor would you want to write a poetry book about, um, about hockey. And so, uh, trying to figure out, like, okay, why do I relate to this person on such a, a hardcore level, and why is this story so powerful to me? Um, mm-hmm. You know, why why do I have these really strong feelings that perhaps other people who have, who have known this story or read about it maybe not felt as much of a need to share? And I think that that made me obviously face a lot of really difficult things. And so um, I think in diving into that and trying to understand just, like, the – the mental health, the self-confidence and the insecurities aspect of all that, um, Mm -hmm. I think was, was both humbling and rewarding. I think humbling in the sense that you have to face the fact that like you are human, you do share a lot of these flaws with other people. And as much as you, especially when I, um, I mean, I was 22 when I was writing this last year. And so, um, obviously it's, it's an age still, or like even now, I think I'm probably still guilty of it to some extent, but like, I think you want to try to push those away and, and fight them as much as you can. And then um, I think it was humbling to accept a lot of them and, and try to face them through this. And then uh, similarly, like it was, um, it was rewarding to, to go through that process and like come out of it and still, uh, you know, I think feel improved about yourself from like the self-confidence mm-hmm. standpoint. And um, it, it led to a lot of conversations like, um, I, I'd like one good example of like, like my uncle Joe on my, on my mom's side, my family, who I'll, I'll have to shout out. I think he's listening. Um, All right. Hello, that, Uncle Joe. But All right. <laughs> he, he and I had, we had like, he and I have always been close where we'll, we'll text about sports and things of that nature and uh, share a lot of the same sports teams that we're fans of. Um, but had never really talked about like a lot of really deep emotional things before. And that's not to say that, uh, we didn't want to have that relationship. I think it just hadn't really come out naturally. And so like an instance like that, where this uh, kind of derived from sharing writing and, and then he shared writing back with me, which was equally powerful. And um, having that experience of being able to expand the relationship like that, which obviously that's not the only example, but just the one that I, I wanted to share um, was really rewarding in terms of like people who I already felt really close to being mm-hmm. able to grow even closer to through this experience of just having conversations about this um, because I, I think just like reading it and putting these things out there, just like uh, not necessarily forced, but made it more natural for uh, you know, family members, friends, and even people who I've never met before to, to have conversations about topics that, you know, usually wouldn't come up at the party, I suppose. So um, it, it's been very rewarding in that sense. All right. Please share another piece. Sure. Um, this one is titled voice like an angel. She said she'd heard I had a voice like an angel, but I don't really sing anymore. Jealous innuendos weren't the type of sounds for me. Rumors of awakening always too soon heard. Fairy tales hiding warnings, happy endings quick to pass. If I still sang, it would never be alone. It'd be in a bar where nobody would believe the stories, the audience of 60, forever tell them from that night in the countryside. They'd know I learned everything I feel from the sound of a piano. I only need my things that make sounds, and I'd sing, wondering if she still pondered me, 
my songs would be the type that make you wonder if you're okay. Thank you. <laughs> you know, editing is a part of this process, and some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's so much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. Brian, what is your take on the editing process? Yeah, I, I think that it can differ from poem to poem, and I think a lot of it's just what feels natural. And I think I, I agree with that, that it is it is a creature, and you can only change it so much uh, from its mm-hmm. initial form. But uh, part of that is working hard at the change and trying to get it to the best point possible. And so I think that um, I don't think I think it's really difficult to change the substance that's on the page, right? I mean, from our discussion earlier of like the poem leads you down a certain path and. Um, you know, if, if the creatures led you to that point, that's where you are and, and you have to live with it. And so uh, I think it's hard to regenerate and change what you've written, but I think you can play around with it quite a bit. I think, uh, you know, word choice obviously is the big one that everyone, uh, it's probably the first edit everyone makes of just going through and circling, you know, maybe I didn't like this, this doesn't come across the right way as I read it out loud or whatever it may be and playing around with that. And I think, on top of that, I think spacing is another really big one. I think just um, understanding the fact that obviously while there's the spoken word aspect to it, most people are just reading poetry uh, through the visual medium. And I think that trying to go through and view your poem as a visual piece of art is really important for seeing just where words are on the page spatially and being able to play around with that. And I think that that obviously where something is visually affects how someone reads it. And so I think trying to get to the best point where you feel like, okay, this is, this is how a reader is likely going to take it away uh, and how they're going to interpret it. How can I position this in a literal sense uh, as best possible to make sure that I'm kind of getting across the sound that I want to have. And so uh, I think I, I tend to play around a bit more with spacing. Like when I write by hand, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really play around with spacing much. Actually, I kind of just go, with like the the most boring the most boring setup of all time of having everything on the left hand side like no indentation or anything, um, and then once I have that substance I have to play around with it quite a bit and um, I think a lot of it's just like trial and error frankly of like you know how does it look when I move this over here and then read through and maybe you like it maybe you don't and you just kind of keep going through and um, you know over and over again I think a lot of it is um, I don't know if it's necessarily patience because it, it's not something that you're ever really getting frustrated over, at least in my experience, but more so just taking the time and like really like sitting down and just having a dedication to working slowly to really be meticulous about every aspect mm-hmm. of that. And, and there's more to it, obviously, of uh, uh, font, you know, size of the words, italicization, bolding a word, uh, maybe, maybe like uh, using the informal of a word of, uh, knocking knocking the last letter off or something like that. And so I think there's a lot of playing around that comes with it. And I think that um, I honestly think a lot of it just comes from trial and error and seeing what looks good to you and, and trusting your instincts on, okay, this feels better, this feels more natural, or it doesn't and you revert back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, let's imagine for a moment that a poem, that creating a poem is like baking a cake, all right? And you kind of talked about it just now, like baking a cake. So what are some of the prevalent ingredients that go into the concoction we call a poem? How do you pull it all together? Yeah, I, I think I think there's two big pieces of um, maybe you're not thinking about this first one quite as much when you're first writing a rough draft just because you may mm-hmm. not know what the overall goal is. But I think once you do know the overall goal of a piece, I think 
trying to understand how does this add to it, um, and is this is this like adding value to the overall story that I'm trying to present here? And if the answer is no, I think then trying to figure out okay why, like what's going wrong? Is this is it because it's kind of synonymous to something else I've written? Is it how can it add to that maybe, or how can it differentiate itself? Um, and I think getting it to the point where each individual piece is adding another layer to the cake is really important because obviously the more layers you have and just the more depth, the more there is to take away and the more valuable it becomes for someone to read and think about. Um, mm-hmm. And I think number two is probably a lot simpler, but just like, is there, is there really raw emotion that hits hard and feels like, like did it feel like you really had to kind of dig it out? Because I think that, um, something that's surface level just honestly may not be quite as powerful. And that's not to say that um, things that are easy to think about or easy to write about are, are less powerful at all, because I'm sure uh, there are a lot of examples that would counter that. But um, I think just trying to really, really focus on is this something that if I were to share would spark a conversation emotionally if it were me and one other person sitting in the room, and would it cause us to talk about this? Or is it is it not quite... Uh, heavy enough that someone may just brush it off. And so I think trying to understand um, just the impact of what you're writing and, like, what what would this make me and someone else talk about, regardless of who it is, uh, I think those are the real, real key drivers for me in terms of understanding, like, what I'm going to focus on writing about in a particular poem and then moreover in the whole collection. You know, there's so much, Brian, happening in our world. There's the good, the bad the ugly, as well as the indifferent. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think that the role of a poet, honestly, is just to continue sharing those honest reflections of experiences in ways that will help people to have conversations about it. And I think that can come in a, in a variety of ways. And, like, um I think like other poets who I've worked with, who I really admire, kind of share that in the sense that, um, you know, everything you write is designed to be important. And obviously, uh, it's it's really good to write with imagery and try to share senses and that kind of stuff. But also, I think making sure you have a focus of like, is this telling a story that's really important? I think that there's a few really interesting ones of like um, people, like three people, for example, who I'm actually doing a a shared show with later this month in New York are each poets and the, they range from, you know, like cultural difficulties growing up um, as a young man in New York. And then someone also writing about transitioning from coming from higher education of Princeton, Columbia to, uh, you know, turning themselves into an artist and giving up everything for that path. And then uh, a third writing about sobriety, which is something that I think I've, I frankly have not read many poems about uh, or letters for that mm-hmm. matter. I think that each of those are going to be really different, but really emotionally hard hitting. I think that in terms of like the role of the poets and the roles of ourselves uh, and in that particular instance is just like, how do we each tell our own story that's really different from one another, but how do we combine them to all make them important in the sense that we're sharing this notion of telling an experience from our lives that are important to impact other people and make sure that we're reporting truthfully. And I think that, um, you know, anything that's going to be written word that's going to be published for anyone to see, I think you definitely have a responsibility of like, what is like, is, is this going to be impactful in terms of making someone think about something in a way that's helpful towards, towards themselves as an individual and then uh, going to be helpful towards understanding others as well. And I think that 
if you can accomplish either of those, that's really great. If you can accomplish both, that's amazing. Um, and so I, I think the role of the poet is just to continue trying to accomplish that. I like that. You know, we've reached my favorite part of the show, which I view as being a mini poetry concert. This is an opportunity for you to share three or four of your works back-to-back, no interruptions from me. Brian, you're on the stage. Great. Thank you. Um, I'll start by reading The Eve of Spring. Crystal white snow falls on trees, standing bare before, now glistened by the white sheet. A moose emerges from the glistened trees, leaving footprints in white. The blanket covers the front lawn, giving space for children to create new footprints. The youngest of the children goes sprinting out first into the black, away from the barricades of indoors, jump by jump through the blizzard, the cold air providing a warm, fresh relief, smiling all the way back to the warm fire, looking out on the eve of spring. Now, the next one I'll read is titled Sunshine. This year, my heart hung low. If I had a tale I could tell you, I'd fang a smile. If I could wish, I'd wish sunshine made me high, sitting on the crystal water, listening to the sounds of silence. Lately, I've been thinking about my life's time, dark crevices of my particular mind, the good times with my old man. This must be my dream, Highland Lake, how it feels to love. Be dreaming that sunshine on my shoulders makes me cry. Next, I'll read Hendrix. The time I burned my book felt like a sacrifice. If poetry is my religion, then Shakespeare wrote the Bible. Freedom is running with the blind, not listening to the suffocation of a brain. Letting your senses guide your feelings. For what is the purpose of language if we cannot express ourselves? And lastly, I'll read, Can You See Me? Can you see me? Looking at the future through your NASA telescope life gave you, sitting by the window of a candle-lit four-cornered room. Can you hear the sounds, the sounds of tomorrow, dancing across the sky, landing in the sharpness of the heart, telling us that it's all here today, and I'd love it if we made it. Thank you. Brian, what do you think your work conveys about the human condition? I, I think it mostly, I, I think I, I've heard a lot of really interesting um, sub-themes of things that people have taken away from it, but I think the biggest one is likely just that it really doesn't matter how much success you may have had on paper in one area or another or um, you know, just what what your life looks like to someone else. But I think that there are a set of shared feelings and emotions that we all have experienced at one point or another. And I think a lot of them center around the emotions that stem from tragedy. And I think that's an emotion that I think everyone can relate to. I mean, if you were to, if you were to go ask pretty much everyone in the world of, you know, can you tell me something tragic that's happened to you and how you felt after, I think, um, while the specific experiences would be a lot different, I think that what we all took away from it and how we felt would be, um, I, I don't think anyone would be alone in terms of finding someone who shared the feelings that they had. And so I think that trying to dive into that, and, and I did that with someone who I felt like I closely connected to, 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that was helpful in terms of helping readers not necessarily try to view this as relating to the same person that I did, but more so taking those feelings that I derived from it and hopefully then reapplying that to thought and feelings towards someone who they do share that towards, who, um, you know, whoever their version of Hobie Baker is. And um, I think that was, in hindsight, I, I don't know that I really recognized that when I started writing, but mm-hmm. uh, now that I've concluded the writing process and been able to speak with people about it, I think that is really my primary goal in terms of continuing to tell this story now. So are you hoping that the ghosts of Mr. Baker resonates with a broad range of readers, or are you targeting a specific audience? I think um, I think I more so hope that it targets a broad range of readers, primarily just because of that aspect of how I do really truly feel like this is relatable on some level or another for really everyone. I think that there is an element of, um, I'm an incredibly small sect of people who have gone through not like the identical experience of this. And, and part of that is for them. And part of that is trying to help make sense of it and, and understand that better. Um, but definitely not, not the only audience I'm focused on at all. I definitely think that um, I probably even more so enjoy the conversations with people from completely different backgrounds who have taken something away from it and, and trying to understand how, how they overlap with each other and how they relate to each other. And it's, um, I think the coolest part of it is just trying to like see how you get from point A to point B in those conversations of how two people who, who have very little shared experience can share these emotional takeaways. And so uh, I, I think that broader audience is more intriguing to me, honestly, and just kind of seeing what comes out of it. And, and it's really cool too of that. Obviously I have my views on the writing, but I don't think that mine are necessarily more correct than any readers are. And so um, getting to have those conversations and see what people take away from it is is really impactful for me, just like continuing to learn both about other people and myself of um, seeing how certain things are interpreted and, or maybe someone asking me a question about myself in regards to this. And um, a lot of times it's something that I haven't really thought about. And so getting those thoughtful questions is uh, really impactful. And I was like, you know, the purpose of like why is writing therapeutical is because it makes you think about a lot of things that you probably wouldn't force yourself to think about otherwise. And so I think, just trying to continue down that path as much as possible and continuing to consider new things is uh, really important to me, and I value it a ton. I can tell. Now, through writing this first, how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, I, I would say, so I think the first draft probably took me about five days, and then from that point I spent about three months editing, um, and I think – I'm not sure how that would translate in terms of hours because obviously there were some weeks where maybe I um, just didn't really feel as much progress and needed to kind of step away from it or other weeks where, where I was spending 14 hours a day working on it. And so it yes. uh, wasn't necessarily linear during those three months, but I would say start to finish, it was really uh, early to mid-September up until uh, close to New Year's. And, and I think that – Late December, honestly, I think was was really helpful for editing primarily just because of the time of year that I think this portrays throughout the book is wintertime, obviously, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think really just like just being in, in cold New England in December and trying to finish the editing process was really helpful just because I felt like I was really in the story um, uh, with the elements outside and just having snow and the cold, like, 
the feelings I was trying to create, I could kind of recapture just by simply walking outside. And so uh, that was really the ending of my editing process. And then uh, once, once we shifted over to January, um, that was kind of when we started shifting more, more into the publishing process and, and trying to figure out the other elements to it. So when you completed the process of writing the book and it's published, what do you think you learned about yourself, my friend? Who are you as a consequence of writing this book? Yeah, I, I think I learned about myself. That I think that I, re- I feel things on a really deep emotional level and that things that other people go through and are telling me about and like re- and whether it's someone who's telling me a story face-to-face or reading about it um, really gives me like a great deal of just like trying to understand them and like trying to really feel what they're feeling. And so I think that for me trying to like, one thing I learned is just trying to lean into that more. I think that's something that in the past, maybe, maybe I was embarrassed about or, or didn't feel quite as comfortable leaning into someone else's story of fear that I may be like ridiculed for, um, I don't know, you know, trying to maybe have my own hypothesis of it and being wrong. And I think just trying to like, really make an effort to to dive in headfirst more so and just like really take other people's stories and try to figure out how they relate to myself. Because obviously like, uh, like a big inspiration for this story was someone else's and like someone else mm-hmm. who, who lived a hundred years before me and I've never met or never spoken to. And I think just trying to take advantage of like other people who I do have the chance to talk to and learn uh, a way, way more detailed account of their life stories. Um, and obviously there's emotional takeaways from people alive today who I think would have uh, as strong, if not much stronger of a reaction than this one. And so um, as much as I love this story, I think just recognizing that there's other equally powerful ones out there and just um, not necessarily like, you know, looking to find them, but being open to just leaning into conversations and trying to recognize when I, when I do feel perhaps, uh, scared or insecure in those situations yes. and, and, you know, quickly in your head, figure out why and, um, and, and try to ameliorate it as best you can to, to get over it and have a conversation that may, maybe will lead nowhere or hopefully will be really impactful and, um, and worth the effort. Well, I know you stated in your synopsis, and I really like it, that in this book you offer readers a glimpse into the messy beautiful and ultimately rewarding journey of understanding oneself, and that's life. You know, I, I love that line. I love that because it's true. It is messy. It can be beautiful, and it is rewarding. A tough journey, but it is rewarding. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Uh, I, I think so. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think so. I don't know if, uh, like, I was always necessarily bound on the path to being a poet, but I always feel like, in hindsight, I was definitely meant to be, to be a writer in some form, and I, you know, mm-hmm. found my love for poetry. Uh, I, I think like a you know, funny story of just like when I was, when I was a kid, uh, you know, in our, in our kitchen at home, we used to just like, literally like I'd write stories on, on colored paper with my mom and then, um, staple them together and make my own, you know, homemade bound books when I was a kid. And, uh, during like independent work time when I was in elementary school, I remember like getting in trouble in second grade for, uh, my dad had basically given me comic books from when he was a kid to read at home that weekend. I read them. I loved them. And then. Uh, when we were meant to be working on kind of like independent worksheets and that kind of stuff, I was, I had my own like line paper out making my own comic books. And, uh, I remember, I remember getting in trouble for that. And so I think like in hindsight, there were a lot of clues, uh, that I was, 
definitely always drawn into writing. And I think a lot of that just comes from my desire to lean into storytelling, but also being a bit of historically, I think a bit of a, a shy person in terms of like vocally telling them. And so I think writing was always just kind of the easier way for me to get those out. Um, especially just like being a youngest child. I, I didn't really, it was, it's hard to get a word in at, at the dinner table when you're the youngest. And so um, I think for me, like writing was kind of how I, how I found my avenue to do that. And so um, obviously it took a long time and wasn't, wasn't a linear thing where I was always writing. I obviously had, um, plenty of teenage years where I think I probably didn't lean into it as much as I wish I did in hindsight, but, um, you know, from to go just from like the beginning to where I am now, I think it definitely does make sense to me that I'm a writer. So what surprises you most, Brian, about being a poet? What surprises you? I think just, just the conversations that come from it. And I think that like when I was not even as a kid, but like as a college student, I think I was always, very, very intimidated by the thought of like having discussions with poets or like if I were in an advanced poetry class where we had a poet coming to speak to us, I think that a lot of them definitely were really approachable people, but I think I was always just a little bit uh, fearful of just like the intellect behind poetry because I think it has this um, reputation of being a bit harder to understand and a bit less accessible than other forms of writing and especially less so than just like traditional storytelling. And so um, I think that what's been most surprising is now being able to like have those conversations from the other side of it. Um, like last or a couple of weeks ago, being at an event that someone else curated, uh, being able to like have conversations with people who were coming through it and uh, interested in the book and buying copies of the book. It was really fun just to be able to like tell my story with the book and be able to have discussions and like hear questions from people. And it's like really surprising where I think when I finished writing, I had an idea in my head of what I thought people would take away from it and what I thought a question or two may be. And then kind of went through this process of going to another level of new people and hearing what their questions were and hearing how they were different from what I may have expected. And then at that point, I kind of thought, okay, I, I understand what, what the questions would be. And that just kind of never stops or continues snowballing. If there's always a new question, there's always a new thought. And, and someone who's a reader always comes in with something that I um, maybe just like hadn't thought about in that lens yet. And it's been really, really both surprising, cool, and rewarding to be able to like have those conversations with, with people who I obviously haven't had a personal history with, but be able to like now develop a relationship with, even if it's someone who I only talked to for 15 minutes just to have like a really deep connected conversation has been uh, really surprising. I think that's the type of thing that I maybe prior to writing this wouldn't have done quite as often. I don't think I would have really had these random conversations with people who I hadn't met before and uh, not I mean, really not sure what would have sparked them and not sure if I would have continued them, frankly. And so uh, it's been really surprising and cool to see what conversations arise from it. All right. All right. Well, We've reached the end of our poetic journey. Where can the book be purchased? Uh, so the book can be purchased uh, atmosphere.com, which is the press that I worked with. They sell copies of it uh, through their site and then similarly on Barnes and Nobles and then as well as a lot of other electronic sites. Um, I know Amazon as well and then uh, pretty much any other major retailer of books like that. And then uh, similarly within a few uh, local bookstores within my region of Connecticut and New Hampshire, um, which can be found through primarily my social media for where those are uh, being supplied. All right. So what's next for you creatively? Where do you go from here? 
I think just continuing to write, I think um, it's obviously uh, a, a bit tough to get into other mediums of writing with the current WGA strike, which uh, hopefully gets resolved and, and we're all able to be supportive of. But I think just continuing to, to write in both poetic forms and trying new forms, I think understanding that people uh, digest things differently based on what form mm-hmm. you're writing in is really important and just trying to put out impactful stories that come through a variety of mediums is crucial and whether that's um, – you know, whether that's poetry or something else, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think just continuing to write and find stories that are similarly impactful and follow those two principles that we discussed earlier is my current mm-hmm. priority. And um, uh, hopefully, you know, finding avenues to be able to put those out uh, in the near future and uh, be able to kind of continue down this path and hopefully it just expands. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you. I really enjoyed listening to you share your work. I think you have a very bright future as a poet, as a writer. You know, one of the questions that I ask is about literary success. So when you come back, I want you to talk about that. I'd like to invite you to come back so you can talk about literary success, your next projects, everything. All right? Awesome. Thank you. I I really look forward (laughs) to that. Can't wait. And uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real honor to, to speak with you and, uh, Really enjoyed every second of it. Well, you know, I wish you, again, nothing but success. I I already feel it in my bones that success is coming (laughs) your way. All right? And, again, you're the the only hockey player I've ever talked to. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully hopefully not the last, but we'll see. (laughs) Well, that puts your name down in history (laughs) already. (laughs) That's great. All right, all right. Well, to you and to the listening audience and to your family and friends, as I share with everyone every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, Brian. Thank you. Good night. (laughs) Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at QLPOR.com.